book of Acts, and we'll be looking at Acts chapter 3. Acts 3. Beginning in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixing his gaze on him, And said, look at us. And he began to give them his intention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, Why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you, but to be put, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, He is thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first... God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. 
the word of the Lord. Can please pray with me? Lord, we, we can't help but pray for help because we are weak. And we know that just mere willpower, Lord, even mere intellectual effort is not enough for us to be godly. And that is our goal. We want to be like Christ. We want to love you with all our being. And Lord, we need help even just to understand your word. And for that understanding to go beyond just intellectual synapses in the brain, but Lord, to deepen, go deep into our heart and our affections and our desires. Lord, we want to be totally transformed in every aspect of our being. And so we pray that you'd use your word this morning to accomplish that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. This was the pivotal question asked by Juliet in Shakespeare's famous romance, Romeo and Juliet. And and her point is taken quite well. A name is just a label. But it's also true that a name also conveys great significance. A person's name is their identity, and it's everything that a person thinks about when they hear that name. So you can just consider what, when a person hears your name being spoken, what comes to their mind? It's not just thinking about you, but your identity, who you are, your, your, your reputation, your impact upon a person's life. And just consider what comes to your mind when I mention the following names. Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Benito Mussolini, St. Augustine, Mother Teresa, Osama bin Laden, Martin Luther, Winston Churchill, Donald Trump. A name conveys a lot more than just simply a label. When each of our sons were born, we named them after, uh, each of them after major prophets in the Bible, as an example to follow in their life, we hope. And not only that, we gave them middle names uh, after um, some of the men that have had a great impact on our lives Adoniram Judson, William Carey, John Owen, Jim Elliot. Because a name is significant. And in the Bible, one's name signifies their reputation, their identity, their legacy, their significance. And this was the significance of God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12 when he said, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Consider also the exaltation given to Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. When he says, Paul says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and tongue confess that you are God. We see the power of Jesus' name also in the text before us. In that Peter says that it is through the name of Jesus that this man is healed. Last week in chapter 2, we noticed that uh, 
Luke said that a number of different signs and wonders were being performed through the apostles. And here we give, are, are given a specific example of that. Chapter 3 narrates this miracle that was performed, but it was given particularly for the benefit of those who are currently outside the church by drawing, to their, drawing their attention to the reality of who Jesus Christ was. He was the Christ. And Peter emphasizes that this miracle was not performed in the power of the apostles, but in the power of Jesus' name. And that name having power because Jesus was not merely a man, he was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. The very person whom the Jews just weeks earlier had demanded to be crucified. And however, despite this crime, Peter wants them to know that God still desires to show mercy upon you. And that is why this man has been healed in your midst, that you might know God's mercy even after your abominable crime. The text can be divided into three parts. Quite simply, you have the miracle in verses 1 through 10. Then Peter gives his explanation of the miracle in verses 11 through 18. And then finally, he gives an exhortation to the people in light of his explanation of the miracle. Let's look first of all at verses 1 through 10 and the miracle that's narrated. In verse 1 it says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. So Luke's giving us the context when this miracle was performed. It was performed in the temple, specifically at the beautiful gate. And it was done at the time of the the ninth hour, that is three o'clock in the afternoon. The main point of these verses is actually not seen until verse six. The The whole narrative at least these first ten verses, hinges on verse 6. In the well-known words of Peter to the lame man, I know them from the King James Version, Peter, uh, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give to thee. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. The, the whole section hinges on, these, on this verse. The first five verses describe the lameness of the man, and then after verse 6, 7 through 10, It emphasizes his ability to immediately get up and walk. I mean, a a radical change has taken place, is the point, because of the name of Jesus. And the emphasis on this transformation of the man's lameness is purposeful. And it, because again, the miracle is done in the name of Jesus. It emphatically identifies who Jesus is. Because numerous Old Testament texts stressed that when the Messiah came, one of the marks of his identity would be the fact that he heals the lame. We see this in multiple Old Testament texts, Micah 4.6, Zephaniah 3.19, but especially Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. If you flip there briefly, keeping your finger in Acts, Acts 3, in Isaiah 35, verse 5, it says this, The eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Recall also Jesus' words to John the Baptist when he wanted confirmation 
that Jesus truly was the Messiah that they were expecting. And Jesus said, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor of the good news preach to them. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And so the point here in Acts chapter 3 is not simply that the apostles have been given incredible spiritual power, but that that power is not from them, but through them. The power isn't of the apostles, it's of the risen Christ. The reason this man can be healed is because Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah heals the lame. That's how you know him. Note also that Luke goes out of his way to note that the healing took place at the temple. In particular, the beautiful gate. And this is actually the only time in ancient texts where this gate is called the beautiful gate. So scholars aren't sure which of the gates in Jerusalem it was. Most believe it's the Nicanor Gate. Because according to Josephus, it was remarkably beautiful. It was chiefly composed of gold and silver, remarkably enough. And Peter, when he says to this man, he says, silver and gold, I don't have. But what I do have, I give to you. At the name of Jesus, get up and walk. He doesn't give him silver and gold like the silver and gold at the temple gate. What he gives is something better than merely entrance to the temple. He gives them something. He gives them entrance to the truest temple of all, Christ himself. Recall at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus came to the temple and cleansed it of sinners who had set up shop in the temple. And then the, the religious leaders accosted him and asked for uh, a defense for why he did that action. And he said to them in John 2, verse 19, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise that up in three days? And then it clarifies, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. The point is, Jesus is the truest temple of all. The, the, the one who tabernacled among us, according to John 1. And recall that it's only been a matter of weeks since Jesus made this prophecy. The word, I should say, when this prophecy was fulfilled. When the Jews did destroy the body of his temple, the temple of his body. When they called him to be crucified. And Peter and John are now proclaiming in the temple the fulfillment of this prophecy. You did destroy his body, but God has raised it up again. And this is what Peter explains in verses 11 through 18. And he begins his explanation of the miracle by first making clear, again, that, that the power did not come from the apostles, it came from Christ. Verse 12, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this, or why you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The question that he asks, why do you gaze at us, is meant to contrast what the words that he spoke to the lame man when he healed him. When he said, look at us. The point is, even though real spiritual power did come through Peter, it just came through them. It wasn't of them. It was of the risen Christ. They only have power as apostles because they represent Jesus. It's the only reason. 
And that's what he means in saying that it's in Jesus' name that the healing took place. Peter then gives a full explanation of the healing. Let's read verses 13 through 16. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate, when he decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses, and on the basis of faith in his name. It is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him perfect health in the presence of you all. Quite simply, Peter's explanation of this miracle is this. You killed the Messiah. This man has been healed by the power of the Messiah, the Messiah you recently killed. Jesus was your promised Messiah, and you killed him. Notice that in naming Jesus, Peter specifically calls him God's servant in verse 13. And Peter's not simply saying that Jesus was a faithful servant of God. That term, servant, is loaded. And the Jews knew it because the most famous proclamations about the Messiah were given by the label of servant. Isaiah 49, Isaiah 42, and Isaiah 53 are what are called the servant songs, which were the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah, what the Messiah would do, what he would accomplish when he came. Peter's emphatic about this point that they killed their promised Messiah. And he's not subtle at all in emphasizing their guilt. Look at verse 14. You disowned the holy and righteous one. And you asked for a murderer to be set free. The one who was sinless, you rejected. And instead you embraced one who had blood on his hands. Verse 15. You put to death the prince of life. Now that phrase means the author of life. The one who gives life and breath to all things. Whose life, your life, is in his hands. You killed him. And and he's not seeking to help to heap guilty feelings upon the Jews here. He's not trying to break them. He's wanting to make it clear the, the horror of the crime that they recently committed. And how desperately they need forgiveness. Again, brothers and sisters, recall Jesus wasn't simply killed. He was tortured. Unarguably the most horrific, painful torture device that's ever been imagined by man. And this was for crimes he never committed. In fact, he never committed any crimes. He was sinless. He was Innocent of all wrongdoing. And his whole life he had spent serving other people, caring for other people, healing, encouraging. And yet he was then condemned as a criminal, as a murderer. As if he was a murderer. In fact, as Peter notes, the Jews demanded that a real murderer get released. Just so that Jesus could be murdered. 
No release of the murderer, no murder of Jesus. Peter's making it clear. His blood's on your hands. Now, we're, we're horrified, and rightly so, when we think of crimes that are committed against children because of their innocence. But Jesus was more innocent than any child because he alone is completely without sin. And he wasn't only sinned against, he was tortured. And why? Why did the Jews demand that he be tortured? Because he claimed to be the Messiah and he didn't meet their expectations. He wasn't good enough in their eyes. And so they wanted him to be killed. Peter's point is that this is the most horrific crime ever committed in history. And it was purposed by God to accomplish the greatest good. Those verses 17 through 18. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled God has used your horrific sin to bring about the greatest good for you. He's used your sin to bring about good for you. As you well know, this world is full of injustice. We see stories of it every day from our friends or just even in the news. Evil is rapidly increasing, and it, and it only seems to be increasing in its perversity and its audacity. But it's critical that we remember that nothing that happens in this life is outside of God's direction. And we can't understand how God is using the evil that we see and often are victims of. We can't see how he's working that for good or we're not given insight into understand God's purposes. I mean, that was made clear in the book of Job. But we know that he's sovereign. And we know that he's good. And we can cling to that. And even the greatest evil present in the world, as Joseph told his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Now the fact of God's sovereignty over Christ's death, doesn't justify these murderers. They're still horrifically guilty of what they did. Just imagine for a moment, to understand this, you were test driving a car. And in a moment of distraction, you accidentally end up losing control over the car and you run over a young mother and her, and her son and you kill them instantly. Your fault. You were distracted. Just imagine the guilt you would feel. You may, you probably will never get over it. Now how much more guilt if in a rage you did it purposefully 
you were frustrated because of a phone call or a driver in the road and you make a foolish choice or maybe there's something they did and that upset you and so you take it out on them in a moment of rage. And when you come to your sanity, you realize the horror of what you've done. Or what if you deliberately, intentionally, premeditatedly sought to kill them because you hated their husband and father? And so, in vengeance, you ran them over. Even such a crime as that doesn't hold a candle to demanding that the Messiah be crucified. These Jews were guilty of the worst crime that could ever be imagined. And the guilt they would have felt would have been unspeakable. And Peter wants this crowd to know that God allowed this crime to be committed against his son so that the people who killed him might receive forgiveness for all their sin. God allowed, directed his son to be crucified by these murderers so that those murderers might be completely cleansed of all guilt and absolutely forgiven for every sin they'd ever been committed. And this is made clear in verses 19 through 26 in Peter's exhortation. When he says, therefore, in light of your murder of the Christ, Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And Peter just makes a very simple exhortation here in two words. Repent and return. The words are actually essentially synonymous. One emphasizing what we're to turn from our sin and what we're to turn to. God. And, 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 and this fact, this return and repent, it emphasizes the relational aspect of, of repentance that's often missed. Typically, we just think of the, the volition, the will, the change of direction or action in our life. But repentance primarily is about reconciliation of a broken relationship with God. And therefore, it doesn't just encompass the will but it encompasses our affections, our thinking. In fact, we recognize what was wrong. Our minds are changed about that sin. We were, were convicted, and that conviction affects our affections, and our affections leads to an act of the will, so we don't turn back to that sin, but continue to follow Christ. Repentance is, affects all of our being. It's not just thinking differently about sin. It's not just feeling differently about sin. It's not just acting differently about sin. It's all of those. Unless all of those are included, it's not real repentance. It's half-hearted repentance, which isn't repentance. I like to illustrate the nature of repentance, as you know, with an analogy about surfing. Three friends had gathered in Santa Monica, which is a beach close to Los Angeles, to go surfing, famous surfing spot. The weather was clear and the waves were high because a storm had since passed through Los Angeles. 
So they were excited about a good morning of surfing. And after enjoying a few minutes in the water, they were accosted by a lifeguard who yelled out to them and told them that they were, what, what they were currently swimming in was actually runoff from the previous day's storm of sewer water. And so they were not only swimming in the ocean, but, a, but an ocean full of sewer water from, that had been disgorged from every inhabitant of Los Angeles. And upon hearing this, the first friend figured that the lifeguard was telling the truth. But even though he knew what he was swimming in now, he so loved surfing. And he loved the waves that he just decided he was going to tolerate the filth. The second man got out and stood on the shore. Yet for even hours afterwards, he wondered what he was missing as he saw his friend out there enjoying the waves. If he really did make the right decision because he secretly envied that first friend. Even though he never joined him, he wished he could be there. The third friend however, was so repulsed at the news that he was swimming in filth that he ran out of the water, tore off his wetsuit, burned it in a fire, and vowed never to surf again. Now, which of those three friends truly repented? The first didn't repent because although his thinking changed about the sin, neither, or the water, I should say, neither his emotions changed, nor did his actions The second didn't repent because although his thinking changed and his actions changed, his longings didn't change. Only the third man truly repented when disgust at the realization of what he was doing drove him to immediately turn, never desiring to to come again. That's real repentance. When we recognize the horror of sin... That it's no longer appealing to us. We see it as disgusting, as shameful. And that leads to a change in our behavior. That doesn't mean we, we won't fall into sin again. But when we realize again what we're doing, we vow never to return. And we keep going. We keep turning from the sin again and again and again as many times as we sin. Whether it's some horrific, abominable sin or something more tolerable in our culture, like lying. And Peter explains in verse 19 that their repentance is going to lead to three things. First of all, their sins will be wiped away. That times of refreshing will come also. And then thirdly, the Messiah will return and bring all his promises with him. Now, the, the first is a very familiar promise to us. But even though it's familiar, we dare not, we dare not miss its beauty in the familiarity. The Greek word here that that Luke uses means to cause to disappear, to, to remove so as to leave no trace, to remove, to destroy, to obliterate. Recognize that if you are in Christ, every single one of your sins that you've ever committed is gone. It's no longer on your record in God's mind. 
on account of faith in Christ's death on your behalf. And you're not only declared not guilty, you're declared holy. You are made spiritually clean. You're not just declared clean. You are clean. You're made clean. You're holy. Like God is holy. Because Christ lives in you. And again, you're holy not because of anything that you've done. But simply because you have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And if you don't have faith in Christ. And if you're unwilling to repent. Because whatever sin you're involved in just is more appealing to you. Recognize what you're turning from. Recognize what you're rejecting. You're you're rejecting forgiveness and cleansing and spiritual refreshment. And that's the next thing that Peter promises. Times of refreshing may come in. The phrase implies relief from difficult and stressful circumstances. We could we could all use a little time of refreshment. The, the, the phrase here, though, implies both an immediate refreshment, but it's primarily looking forward to a future time of refreshment. Even the, even the, the, the refreshment that we get now when we turn to Christ, the relief of that burden from sin, the knowledge of forgiveness, that's just a taste. That's just a shadow. That's just a glimpse of the refreshment that's coming when Christ returns. When He'll give us resurrected bodies, making us free to sin no more. And when He establishes His reign upon the earth. And that's the third promise Peter gives. Verse 20. That He may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Peter's explaining that when Christ returns a second time, because you killed him the first time, but he's going to come again. And when he comes again the second time, he's going to be bringing all of his promises with him. All the promises that you expected to receive at his first coming. In fact, Peter's exhortation to repent here is rooted in Deuteronomy 30 which we read earlier today, where God originally promised this ultimate restoration to Israel. Go ahead and look there. Deuteronomy 30. I know you're familiar with it because we read it as part of our scripture reading. But I want to just again point out verses 1 through 3. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where Yahweh your God has driven you, and return to Yahweh your God. When you return, as Peter's telling them to return, when you return, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart, with all your soul, then Yahweh your God will Restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh your God has scattered you. 
Moses' point back in Deuteronomy and Peter's point here in Acts is that all of those blessings that you long for will come when you repent. And again, he's speaking to the nation of Israel. When the nation recognizes their Messiah, then the Messiah will return and bring all of his blessings with them. Peter then cites specifically Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses, the Lord God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. Verse 23. And it will be that very every soul that does not heed that prophet shall utterly be destroyed from among the people. Again, Peter's saying in these verses that Moses was referring to the prophet, the Messiah, Jesus. In fact, all the other prophets in scriptures were pointing ultimately towards him. Especially John the Baptist. They were forerunners calling the people to repent so that they would prepare the way of the Lord. So that when the Lord came, when the Messiah came, they would finally receive all the blessings that have been promised in the covenant. And then verses 25 to 26 allude to the fact that God also plans to show mercy upon the Gentiles, not just the Jews. But, this is emphatic, he's first offering repentance to the Jews. He's going to them first because they're his people. But he's also going to offer it to the ends of the earth as well. And notice again that the Jews will receive their promised blessing through their repentance. Verse 26. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. He's going to bless you by turning you. The blessing comes through the repentance. If there's no repentance, there's no blessing, there's no forgiveness, there's no wiping away of the sins, repentance must happen. And why is that? Because the problem is our rebellion against God. And God hates sin. Peter's exhortation ends just as it began. Repent. Know that it's through repenting that the blessing is actually found. And just like the Jews of Peter's day and the same thing today, many people assume that they have an entitlement to be blessed by God just simply on the basis of their existence. I exist, therefore I am, therefore I'm entitled to be blessed. Or maybe they'll add to it because I'm hardworking, because I'm smart, because I'm an American, because of fill in the blank. I'm entitled to a nice, easy, comfortable life. And if God doesn't give it to me, he's no God of mine. This is arrogance. To assume that God is truly good only when, if he will bless you and make life easier for you without needing to do a thing. No, this is arrogance whether it's coming from the mind of an unbeliever or a believer. God's not going to bless anyone unless they repent. Consider these responses of God to sin. Psalm 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all 
evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. Yahweh abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Psalm 34, 16. The face of Yahweh is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. He's against anyone who does evil. Who is it that does not do evil? Proverbs 16.5 Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to Yahweh. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. These verses indicate God is not impassive or unaffected by sin. He hates it with a passion. More than any of us hate any sin that's been committed against us. He hates it. That's why it must be dealt with. And if And that's why he sent his son, because there's nothing that can remove the guilt and consequences of sin. But God himself. The holy blood of the lamb. And if one does not have Christ, all they have is all of God's anger against them. In all of its fullness. If there's not repentance. There's not reconciliation. God hates sin as much as he hates righteousness. Again, we're fools to assume that God will bless us if we're not seeking to repent from all known sin. And that's why Peter makes it very clear here. He doesn't just say, believe that God loves you. He says, repent and return to Yahweh. A failure to repent from sin is is akin to continuing in rebellion against God. Again, we need to recall the words of Christ at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to close with this. Matthew chapter 7, 21. Jesus makes this principle so clear after that amazing message that he gave 2,000 years ago. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. What's the mark of a person who's saved? They do the will of the Father. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell. And great. Was its fall. The only way 
that our house will not fall is if we repent and trust wholly in the rock of our salvation. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make our sin clear to us. For there is no one who does not sin. Even after coming to Christ, we battle with indwelling sin. Make it clear to us so that each one of us might know how we need to repent. That none of us would be hypocrites. That none of us would build houses that get destroyed. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not yet know you. Who is still in love with their sin. Who is still a slave to their sin. That you would open their eyes to see what they're rejecting. And to give them a passion, a a love, a, a recognition, an awareness of what you have done for them. That they might turn from their sin and be saved. And Lord, even that it would be so evident that they, even like Kathy, so recently, that they would desire to be baptized. And make it evident that they no longer live for themselves, but for your holy name. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.